So Revelation chapter 13, I will read the first 10 verses. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, this is John, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power. saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for forty-two months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. So when we last looked at Revelation three weeks ago, I think October 17th or so, we looked at the passage, verses 17 through, or 7 through 17 of chapter 12, uh, which this whole section we're in, chapters 12 through 14, is the third cycle of visions that John receives as he is getting these visions on the Isle of Patmos uh, that talk about what is to be revealed or what, is to, what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen after these things. And these visions... Unlike the first two cycles of the seals and the trumpets, these are what we call symbolic histories. They tell the history of this period that we are looking at, this 42-month period, this period we're calling the church age. And in this vision, the first half of this vision, we see these figures, these historical uh, symbolic figures, the woman, the child, the dragon, and now we're going to see the beast. But the, the woman is representative of the people of God. And she gives birth to a child, and that child is Jesus, the Son of God. And the, and the dragon is Satan, who is there waiting to devour the child when, it's, when it was born. But the child is quickly caught up to heaven, to his throne, and then the dragon now is frustrated. And once that happens, then we see this war breaking out in heaven, as now the dragon is battling with Michael, and the dragon and his angels are fighting Michael and his angels. So this great battle breaks out in heaven as uh, the child who is Jesus is caught up to heaven. He has ascended to heaven. He has defeated death and sin at the cross. He has achieved his victory and he ascends into heaven and receives his throne, receives his kingdom. And when that happens, this war breaks out and Satan is cast out. 
He is cast out of heaven. And this results in great rejoicing in heaven. We see this in verse, uh, where is it? Verse, verse 11 and 12. And there's great rejoicing in heaven as Satan has been cast out. The, the dragon of old, uh, the, the, the deceiver, the serpent who was from the garden, the one who accuses the brethren. And we looked at that, right? Because Satan, before he was cast out, was able to accuse the brethren day and night before the throne of God. And now he no longer has any place in heaven. He has been disbarred, if you will, from heaven and cast out. So there's great rejoicing and then great woe upon the earth and those who dwell on the earth because now the devil is there and he is angry. And he's angry because he knows his time is short. He has a short time. Verse 12, he knows his time is short. So he is out there. Ravaging, you know, ravaging through the earth. And now that Satan is on earth, he begins his persecution of the woman. That's what we see in verses 13 through 17. He could not get the child, so now his rage turns to the woman. And he tries to persecute the woman and tries to get the woman, but the woman is caught up with wings of an eagle and flies into the wilderness where she has a place prepared for her. A place that God has prepared for her. A place of safety and nourishment. So now the serpent you know, again tries to kill her, but he's not able to. So because of this, he becomes even more enraged. And he tries now to uh, go after the offspring of the woman. And this, this, is, this rage is, is motivated because he cannot, he cannot get the people of God to turn against God. So his rage is just pure malice. His goal is to make the lives of the people of God as miserable as humanly possible through that period of 42 months or times, time and half a time. So he goes to make war with the rest of her offspring, that is, the church. And that was what we looked at last time. Now, before we look at this passage that we're going to look at tonight, verses 1-10 through 10 of chapter 13, I want to just take a little bit of time here uh, as a, sort of an excursus on the Antichrist. Because one very popular view of chapter 13 in the beast is that the beast is the Antichrist. So that brings us up to speed. But before, again, this idea, if you, if, if you come out of the dispensational circles, uh, dispensational... Uh, People of a dispensational view of the end times will look at this beast and say, this is the great Antichrist who will rise up during the time of the tribulation in the future. Uh, and it's an emphasis on the Antichrist, a great figure that appears during that seven-year tribulation period. And according to the consensus, now it's like you can probably ask 10 dispensationalists and you might get 10 different answers. You might even get 11 different answers depending on if you go back and ask them again. But there are, the consensus view is that this Antichrist is a person who will be at the head of a re revived Roman Empire which will exist in a ten-kingdom form sometime in the future. So this Antichrist is the beast from the sea that we see here, a Gentile. And who will, as Paul will say in 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, in that book, Paul talks about a man of sin. So in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul 
writes to them because these people here in Thessalonica sort of had a over-realized view of eschatology. They had a sort of a hyper view of eschatology. They thought the day of the Lord had already happened. And Paul says, no, the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet because you need to see the man of sin. That's what he says here in chapter 2, verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself to be God. So that is, according to the dispensational view, that is what they see this beast as, this antichrist figure, this man of sin, the son of perdition, who will exalt himself in the temple of God. He is the ultimate blasphemer. Blasphemer. He is the one who demands worship that only belongs to God. Now, regarding the Antichrist, we know from John's letters, John's epistles, First uh, John and Second John, that there have been many Antichrists. First John two verse eighteen where Paul or John starts to talk about the last hour, he says, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. And even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. So John, of course, writing at the end of the first century, his, his epistles were written sometime around the same time as Revelation. So, 80, 90 A.D., sometime near the end of the first century. And already John is saying that now, at the end of the first century, is the last hour. So when you hear that phrase, last hour, don't think 60 minutes. All right? Think just means that the next thing on God's calendar is the return of Christ, is the end. Okay? So this idea of the last hour is not like 60 literal minutes on a clock, it just means that the time is short. Now, you look at it, it's like, well, that was almost 2,000 years ago. How short can the time be? Well, God's time and perspective of time is not our perspective of time, right? Peter says you know, that to God, a day is as 1,000 years and 1,000 years is a day. So what is time to someone who exists outside of time? Right? So we are so bound in this idea of time, but... Even then, so the idea is that from the time of Christ, his death, his life, death, and resurrection, and ascension to heaven, we are in the last days. Now, again, the last days seem to be taking a long time from our perspective, but not from God's perspective. We are in the last days, the last hour. And John says, Many antichrists have come. There's one that is coming, and then we've seen many already. And if you skip down to verse 22 of 1 John 2. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So John now is telling us what Antichrist is. It is someone who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Someone who denies the Father and the Son. Exhibits this Antichrist sort of mentality. And if you flip over to 1 John 4. 1 John 4 verse 3. Again, here John is talking about these, you know, he says, test the spirits. 
you know, when you, when you hear something, you need to test it with the Word of God. And he says in verse 3, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now already is in the world. So this Antichrist spirit, one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah, one who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, basically if you deny anything that is gospel truth, that is in the Word of God, you exhibit an Antichrist spirit. And then again in his second epistle, 2 John verse 7. We see here, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now I have just read you all of the passages in the New Testament that mention antichrist. They're all in John's letters. 1 John 2.18, 1 John 2.22, 1 John 4.3, and 2 John 1.7. This is the only mentions in the entire New Testament of the word antichrist. And it's, it describes anyone who has an idea or a belief or sort of promotes the belief that is against Christ, anti-Christ, denies that He came in the flesh, denies that He is the Messiah. These are Antichrist spirits. Now, it's not to say that there, will, um, that, there is only, you know, that there won't come someone who is maybe the Antichrist with a capital T-H-E, but to say that there is only one Antichrist is not biblically correct. Anyone who denies Jesus is the Christ or who or denies that He came in human flesh, again, exhibits an Antichrist spirit. Now, back to what Paul uh, says in, uh, in 2 Thessalonians, it does seem reasonable to conclude that there will be a man of sin who embodies this spirit of Antichrist sort of to the superlative degree, who will appear before the end. Uh, this man of sin, the son of perdition. It, it seems reasonable because that's what Paul says. And we're trying to be biblical here. Uh, Paul says that the man of sin will come. The day will not come until the man of sin has appeared. The one who will blaspheme, who will set himself up and, 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 and seek worship that only God receives. But to say that there is only one Antichrist, again, is not biblical because anyone who denies Jesus is the Messiah, anyone who denies Christ is coming to the flesh, exhibits this spirit of the Antichrist. Now, is what have we been saying all throughout our study of Revelation? Because again, we're trying to interpret Revelation. We're going we're gonna to look at this beast here and we're going to try to interpret what it means, but Again, according to the dispensational point of view, this beast is someone who will come in the future from our perspective. Okay? So if it's in the future from our perspective, how far is it from the perspective of the people who would have originally read this? Very far in the future, right? And what I've been trying to argue throughout this entire study of Revelation is if it didn't make sense to John's original readers, then that interpretation is probably wrong. I don't want to say definitely wrong, but I'm going to say probably wrong. If John's readers in the first century, when they get this book, the book of Revelation, the letters that are sent to the churches, and they read there, they're like, I don't know what this means. I have no idea what John is trying to tell us here. 
then I don't think that that's an interpretation that is correct. I think an interpretation that, that would make sense to the readers of John's original audience would have to be something that would be more correct. So it would have to be something that his original audience would understand. So to see the beast of Revelation 13 as a future leader of a future reconstructed Roman Empire during a seven-year tribulation period in the future, I don't think reads, rings true. Okay? And we'll argue, we'll get through this as we look at the beast, but I don't think this idea that the beast is a single individual in the future who will be the head of a new Roman Empire, I don't think that is a correct interpretation. So now as we head into this passage here, we're going to, you know, the question, of course, the, the big $64,000 question hanging over our head is, if it's not this Antichrist figure from the future, then who is the beast? And that will be the question we tackle. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tease this out as much as I can. So, you know, because that's why, you know, I need to earn my, my pay, right? That's how you, you know, I don't want to just let it go and then you guys leave because I've already given you the answer. But again, our interpretation must make sense to John's original audience and to the church throughout this entire period we're calling the church age. Because this idea is, it, Revelation is relevant. It was relevant to John's original audience. It's relevant to us. And it should be relevant to every period of church history. Everyone in church history should be able to read Revelation and have it be relevant to their lives. That this book is explaining something that is happening in their lives as well as our lives and as well as in the lives of the original audience. Which is why you know, the view we've been taking is not strictly everything is happening in the future. Is not strictly everything is happening in the past. Is that you've got a little bit of both of those things going on, but really what we're seeing here is the struggle between good and evil throughout the entire church period. We're going to see beasts throughout the church period. We're going to see antichrists throughout the church period. We're going to see struggles and persecutions throughout the church period. The period from the time that Christ was resurrected and ascended into heaven and the time that He returns in glory at the end of the age. This entire period, that's what we're calling the church period. So it shouldn't come as a surprise here, of course. Another thing that I've been trying to harp on is that the key to the proper interpretation of Revelation is found where? Not in the newspaper, but where? In the Old Testament, yes. So we're going to rely on what we see here in Revelation 13. It's going to have a lot of connections to what we see in Daniel chapter 7 of his book. Now we looked at Daniel 7, I think, in another uh, study. I forget exactly at what, um, when we looked at it. But we looked at Daniel 7 again. We're going to look at it again tonight. But what we're going to see is we're going to see a lot of similarities between Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 13. But now as we come to our passage tonight, I want to break it down into four parts. We're going to see the identity of the beast in verses 1 through 3. Um, and I'm, I'm jumbling up a little bit here too. So the activity of the beast in verses 5 through 7. Really, it should be the identity of the beast is 1 and 2. Activity of the beast, verses 5 through 7. The worship of the beast, verses 3, 4, and 8. And then at the end, a dire warning in verses 9 and 10. So now turning 
to the first part here, the identity of the beast in verses 1 and 2. So again, chapter 12 ends with the dragon waging war on the offspring of the woman. He knows his time is short, and his end is looming near, and he has been unable to destroy the woman and her offspring. So then our chapter opens up in verse 1 where we see, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now, I I don't know, most people here are using New King James. Anybody here using something that's not New King James? ESV? Okay. What do you have, Amy? ESV? Okay. So this idea of standing on the sea, is that at the end of chapter 12? Okay. There's a little bit of a textual issue there, and depending on which translation you're using. Again, remember, New King James uses a different uh, collection of Greek manuscripts for its uh, translation as opposed to pretty much everything else. So that opening phrase there, then I stood on the sand of the sea, really should say, then he stood, probably, right? Then he stood in the sand of the sea. It's at the end of chapter 12. Okay, so there's the reference there could be that John in his vision sees the dragon standing on the sea, okay, on the, sea, on the sand of the sea, and he calls forth the beast. Or if you have a New King James, it makes you feel like John is standing there in a visionary form and he sees this beast rising up. I just mentioned that because there is that little slight textual issue there. Either way, the, <laughs> however it's worded, the point is, is this beast is rising up, okay? That's the key point, all right? It's not who's standing on the sand of the sea watching this happen. The main point is that this beast is rising up out of the sea. Now, we know this beast is connected with the dragon in the previous chapter because look at how he is described. He is described as having seven heads, ten horns, and uh, ten crowns upon his horns. Now, if you look at the description of the dragon in chapter 12, it's very similar, right? How many heads does the dragon have? Seven. How many horns does a dragon have? Ten. Okay, so there is a relationship there, right? The dragon and the beast are related in a sense. So now, we did, we've mentioned this before. Uh, the sea, this idea of the sea, the concept of the sea, is one that does not bring up warm and fuzzy feelings in the Jewish mind, okay? For them, the sea was chaotic. It was turbulent. It was dangerous. A couple of commentators say the sea is the chaotic region from which threat and rebellion arise, an apt portrait of the abyss. Another commentator says the sea was a place of chaos, danger, and evil. Does that sound like a fun place, the sea? Anybody want to take their vacation in a place that's full of chaos, danger, and evil? I don't want to take my vacation in a place that's full of chaos, danger, and evil. Anyway, so the sea is not a fun place. And John sees this hideous beast rising up out of the sea. And again, how hideous is this beast? Again, look at his description. He has seven heads, ten horns, and on his horns, ten crowns, and on his head, a blasphemous name. That seems pretty scary, right? I mean, if I saw a seven-headed, ten-horned beast rising up out of the sea, I would be rightly afraid and again, if you recall, we mentioned this earlier in uh, chapter 12, verse 3. The description is very similar to that of the dragon. 
And this is reasonable considering that the drag or the beast here receives his power from the dragon in verse 2. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. So clearly, the beast is demonic, not in the sense that he is a demon, but rather the beast reflects the dragon. The beast reflects the dragon who invests the beast with its malevolent purpose and power. And John then further describes the beast in verse 2. So look again at verse 2. Now the beast which I saw, this seven-headed, ten-horned beast, he saw here was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. Now I'm emphasizing that word like. Again, remember, this is a vision. John is having a vision. So these are, this is what he is, the reality he sees he is describing has these Images. It's like a leopard, like a bear, like the mouth of a lion. And then again, the dragon gives it its power and its authority and his um, throne. So again, notice that word like three times. It's not meant to be taken literally, that we, we are literally seeing a ten-headed or seven-headed, ten-horned beast that has looks like a leopard, lion, and bear. But if you remember, again, we've mentioned this before, looking at Daniel 7, the leper, the bear, the lion, what does that remind you of? If you remember those visions from Daniel 7. Well, I won't keep you in any suspense. You can keep your finger in Revelation 13 and just flip over to Daniel 7. Because Daniel 7 begins sort of the apocalyptic version, uh, part of Daniel, the, the visionary part. Um, he has interpreted dreams and visions in the first six chapters, but the first six chapters are the parts of Daniel that everyone likes, right? Because he's got all those stories like the, the fiery furnace, the lion's den, and then all these things. And, but here now, Daniel will start to receive visions about the end. And this, these visions of the leopard, the bear, and the lion, it's not like in... Um, Wizard of Oz, you know, leopards, bears, and lions, oh my, leopards, bears, and lions. Um, these, these represent something. During Daniel's stay in the court of the king of Babylon, he received a vision, really is a vision within a dream. And I'm going to read uh, a, a significant portion of Daniel 7 here, starting in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea. Okay, are you already starting to see similarities to Revelation 13? Beasts coming out of the sea. Each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Okay, so we, you know, he has the mouth of a lion. So we see the, the first beast is like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard. Okay, lion, bear, leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. 
After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful, terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had how many horns? Ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. Remember, the beast from the sea in Revelation 13 had blasphemous names and was speaking blasphemies. Then in uh, verses 9-14, through uh, this is the vision of the Ancient of Days. So Daniel sees these visions of these four beasts rising up out of the sea, and then he gets a vision of God on his throne and the authority given to one like the Son of Man who will have dominion forever and ever. And then we go drop down to verse 15. Daniel's vision is interpreted. So I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I would trouble me too. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings or kingdoms or kings representing their kingdoms, which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. In case forever wasn't enough, even forever and ever. And you got to really emphasize that. Then I wished to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on his head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints." and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, And another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Okay, we see that reference again. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion And the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And then he goes on, this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So Daniel has this great vision of four beasts, right? And the angel explains to Daniel that his vision was one of four kings or four kingdoms arising from the earth. And these kingdoms correspond to successive world empires from the time of Daniel. So, and this is this 
corresponds to what Daniel, when he interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in chapter 2, when he saw the great image of the golden head and the silver torso and the bronze hips and the legs of iron and then the feet of iron mixed with clay and the ten toes. And then, then he says he saw a stone as of uncut, not cut by any human hand, came and shattered the entire statue and crushed it to bits. The same the, the concept is the same. What the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had in Jan, uh, chapter 2 is similar to the vision that Daniel has here in chapter 7. These four great kingdoms that arise from the time of Daniel. So you have the kingdom of the Babylonian Empire, which is existent during the time of Daniel. And then Daniel, of course, made it from the Babylonian Empire to the next one, the Persian, the Medo-Persian Empire. That's the bear. So the, the, the Babylonian Empire was the lion. The Medo-Persian Empire was the bear. The Greek Empire that followed after that was the leopard with the four wings and the four heads. It, that gets explained later on in Daniel. Uh, and then after that, the fourth beast, the great and dreadful, terrible one, is the Roman Empire. And it's different from all the others. It shall trample and break in pieces and devour the whole earth. And of course, the Roman Empire was much more vicious and much more ruthless than any of those other empires that preceded it. It is a dreadful and terrible beast. So now, putting this all together, you can flip back to Revelation 13. Putting this all together, what then is this identity of the beast from the sea? It seems clear to me at least that this hideous beast from the sea that we see in Daniel 13 or Revelation 13 is both Daniel's fourth beast and kind of a combination of the previous three beasts. Because Daniel saw four successive beasts. Lion, bear, leopard, and then very dreadful one. This one rising up out of the sea in Revelation 13 is a very dreadful beast. Has ten, you know, seven heads, ten horns. But it also has appearances like a lion, like a bear, and like a leopard. So it's both Daniel's fourth beast and a combination of all of Daniel's beasts. In other words, it's not, the beast is not an individual in the distant future, but a composite of all the empires through human history that have stood against God and His people. The beast is not confined to the Roman Empire. It refers to Rome, but applies also to every manifestation of evil in all governments throughout history, and also to, to the final conflict to come at the end. So this beast represents all of these evil world empires all at once that all stand against God and His people. So that means for the people of John's time, the day, his day at the end of the first century, the beast would most definitely have been referred to as the Roman Empire. But then this beast will also manifest itself differently to different people throughout the period of this 42 months time, times and half a time, or this three and a half year period. As one commentator says, the beast continues to find various expressions, some more overt and potent than others, down to our own day and beyond, should the Lord tarry. So is that kind of clear? <laughs> Right, the beast is 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 in, us, in essence what you have here is you have the dragon, Satan. He is in his war against the saints, in his war against the offspring of the woman, 
calls to his aid world governments. Okay? Think of, you know, again, was the Roman Empire, during the time of John writing this, was the Roman Empire the friend to Christianity? No. The Roman Empire persecuted Christians. Have per- Christians been persecuted by governments throughout this period of the church history? Many, many times. Are Christians being persecuted now by governments in, in the world today? Yes. Will we be persecuted in this country at some point? Should we continue to remain faithful to our own witness? Yes. You see it even now. You see the beginnings of it. And in other countries that don't have protection of you know, First Amendment rights like we have here, in countries like Canada, pastors are being arrested for proclaiming biblical truth because it is hate speech. Okay? So we are, you know, any country that does not protect First Amendment rights, you're going to see if, if you start to proclaim biblical truth, you will run afoul of government. Not to say that government is necessarily evil. I mean, governments are instituted by God, Romans 13, right? They are put in place by God and they serve God's purposes. But, again, governments are run by who? People. People are what? Sinful, right. right? And behind every evil, wicked government in world history lies the power of the dragon. That's the point. If you remember some time ago, we looked at how um, in, it was again in Daniel, I believe it was Daniel 12 or Daniel 10, where Daniel had prayed and he was waiting for an answer and an angel was dispatched to give him the answer, but he was delayed by three weeks and the angel finally comes and he says, I would have been here sooner but I was delayed by the prince of Persia. Now we're not talking an actual person. He was delayed by the demonic forces that were behind the kingdom of Persia at that time. It was, an, it was a spiritual warfare thing going on. This angel was dispatched by God and a demon hindered him for some time until Michael had to come and sort of help out and allow the angel to come and give Daniel the answer. Behind every world government behind every evil empire out there is demonic powers. So that is the identity of the beast. The beast is basically empires throughout human history that have stood against God and His people. Now we see here, we drop down to verses 5-7, through seven. we're going to look now at the activity of the beast. What is this beast doing? So having identified the beast as evil world governments arrayed against the people of God, what does the beast do? We'll look at verses 5 and 6. And he, the beast, was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So I'm catching a theme here, right? Blasphemy. It seems to be a theme. It's repeated three times. So we saw earlier that the beast has on his head a blasphemous name, and now we see that he's given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And if you remember in Daniel 7, in, at least in four occasions there, we saw that its little horn on the fourth beast's head speaks pompous words. Right, That little horn spoke pompous words. It's the same thing here. Blasphemous things. Here we see the beast speaking Blasphemy against God, against God's name, against His tabernacle, His dwelling place, and against those who dwell in heaven. That is the church, the people 
of God. And again, this goes back to what we see now in what we looked at when we looked at the spirit of Antichrist. Here is the true spirit of Antichrist. One that speaks blasphemies against God, blasphemies against His name, blasphemies against His temple, and against the people of God. Instead of exalting God and His Son, Jesus Christ, this beast boasts of himself. He speaks pompous things or great things. He speaks blasphemies or slander, injurious speech. The beast is exalting himself at the same time he is blaspheming everything that pertains to God. And again, we see this all the time with world governments as they acquire power unto themselves. Right? They tend to exalt themselves. And they tend to uh, sort of take over and cross and transgress the boundaries that are really reserved for the church to minister in. The, the government wants to take over everything. Think about how the government even in our own day and age, wants to be your mother and your father and wants to care for you. And wants, you know, we're even now talking about cradle to grave. You know, the government wants to be your daddy, right? This is what the government does. It takes over and it wants to blaspheme and exalt itself. They set themselves up as gods, as the sole provider of all good things, while at the same time persecuting all those who refuse to bow down to their power. Now this again will be personified, I believe, at the end of the age in this man of sin that Paul speaks of in 2 Thessalonians. But as these world governments accumulate all power to themselves, they reveal themselves to be a manifestation of the beast. And we also see here in verse 7, the beast makes war on the saints. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. If you remember back when we looked in Revelation chapter 11, verse 7, we saw the same thing there in reference to the two witnesses. When those two witnesses finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, again to highlight the demonic influence and authority that the beast has. This beast will overcome them and kill them. And here in verse 7 of chapter 13, we see that the beast makes war and overcomes them. And then it says, authority was given to the beast over every tribe, tongue, and nation. So as the beast exalts himself, he makes war against the saints, the church, and overcomes them. Now, this ought not to be taken to mean that the beast is able to make the saints reject their confession of faith. But he will be able to threaten them. He will be able to persecute them. And he will even martyr many within the church. The beast will martyr... Again, think of how Rome persecuted and martyred many believers during John's age. In fact, John is writing during... Uh, the reign of one of the emperors that was one of the most brutal, the emperor Domitian. He had one of the most brutal uh, persecutions of the church near the end of the first century, overlapping over into the beginning of the second century. He was one of the most brutal tyrants over the church. Nero was another one, and that's why Nero is often seen as the beast. And we'll talk about Nero in a moment. But this idea is that the beast makes war. And the beast makes war because the saints don't bow to its power. That's the point. 
The beast wants worship. We're going to see that in a moment too. The beast wants worship, but the people of God, if they're true believers, refuse to worship the beast. Refuse to worship the one who is behind the beast. They want to worship God, so the beast does not brook any competition. Now finally, notice regarding the activity of beast, notice that all of this is given to the beast. Right? He was given a mouth speaking great things. Uh, he was given, it was granted him to make war. And, he was, and, a, and authority was given to him. Now we could say that Satan, the dragon, is the direct agent of this giving. Right? We, see, we saw that in verse 2. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and his great authority. He gives the beast a mouth speaking blasphemies. He grants the beast to make war with the saints. And he gives the beast all authority over all the nations. But, remember, the dragon and the beast operate under what? The sovereign authority of God, right? God is sovereign over all. It's not as if the dragon and the beast are equal and opposite powers to God that they can somehow compete with Him. Right? I mean, we had a wonderful illustration of this with the leash that was given to me some time ago, right? Satan is on God's leash. When Satan wanted to persecute Job, who does he have to go to ask permission? God, right? He goes to God and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And God says, does Job worship God for naught? He says, let me at him. You, give, you let him, let me take over, let me... You know, ruffle his feathers a little bit and he'll curse you to your face. And God says to Job, okay, you can go this far, but no further. And that's exactly what Satan does. He goes as far as God lets him and no further. Satan is not an equal and opposite power to God. Satan is one of God's creatures. Satan is a creature just like we are. He's just a more powerful creature than we are. But he is a creature like we are. He is on God's sovereign list or leash. So all of this is under the sovereign control of God. They are evil agents on God's leash. The unity of the beast's kingdom reflects the understanding that God has permitted the world to stand together under a single evil empire to test His saints. Now we can get into all kinds of questions as to why does God allow that to happen. And that goes a little bit beyond my pay grade. But it is, you know, at that point you're delving into the secret things of God, which God says, don't delve into the secret things of God. Those are my things. What you have here, this is what is yours, what has been revealed to you. The secret things belong to me, God says. We can make all kinds of educated guesses, but the point is, is that God allows this to happen. Again, you have to think, think of the life of Joseph again. This is, it's my favorite example because it's the best example. Right? Joseph had lots of bad things happen to him. And as they were happening to him, Joseph had no idea what the end was from the beginning because he could not see the end from the beginning. All he could see was, I went to go talk to my brothers and the next thing I know, I've been thrown into a pit. And then the next thing I know, I've been sold into slavery into Egypt. And the next thing I know, this guy's wife is chasing me around and I'm trying to tell her to stop. And the next thing I know, she accuses me of rape. And now I'm in prison. And then the next thing I know, I, I do a couple of guys a solid favor, and then the next thing, they forget me, and they leave me in prison for two more years. 
But then all of a sudden, you know, I, I'm, now I'm elevated to the, you know, Pharaoh's right hand. And then when his brothers come, he's like, hey, I can, you know, he could say, if it were me, I'd probably say, now nah, I can get my revenge on you guys. But then it was at that moment that, Dan, that Joseph finally gets an idea. It's like, now I see why God did all this to me. Now, just because God allowed it to happen doesn't mean that any of those things that happened to Joseph were good. His brothers meant evil. Mrs. Potiphar meant evil. Uh, you know, everyone that did him wrong meant evil, but God is able, because he's sovereign, to overwrite and override all of that and to make good come out of it. And that's what Joseph sees at the end. He says, you guys meant it for evil, but God meant it for good for the saving of many people. And we know that because of all that, that sets into motion the Exodus, which sets into motion all other things, and it all leads us to eventually Christ. So even though the beast is given all this power from the dragon, this is all being overseen by God's sovereign control. And of course, this period of the beast's reign of terror over God's people is 42 months. We see it at the end of verse 5. Now this again, this period, we've seen this for you know, many, many times in Revelation. It's either referred to as 42 months, it's either referred to as 1,260 days, or is referred to as time, times, and half a time. And it's all, it's, it all equals a three and a half year period of time, which again we are calling the church age, this period which God's people are sealed for this period, they're sealed and protected. That you know they, they are God's people, but they are also vulnerable to the predations of the beast. We saw this in eleven, chapter eleven, when the temple is measured. He says, "Measure the temple. Don't measure the outer court. The outer court is being trampled." Right. It's the same time. So this idea of measuring means you know the idea of. I have a, you know, I'm taking great note and great detail over you. I'm protecting this area. But you're also vulnerable to attacks from the outside. So God's people are both protected and sealed, but also vulnerable to physical attacks and persecutions. So the, the beast has this period of time that he can make war. But during this entire period of time, the people of God are sealed. They will never finally nor fully fall away from their faith. They will remain faithful to the end. They will be those who persevere to the end, as we see in all the letters in Revelation, right? To the one who overcomes, to the one who overcomes, the one who will overcome is or are those who are sealed by God. So they, in a sense, they're protected from the beast, but not physically. They are spiritually protected from the beast. So now let us move on to the third point. The worship of the beast, verses 3, 4, and 8. So to confirm this antichrist spirit of the beast, we're going to see worship being given to the dragon and the beast. But what is it that inspires and motivates the worship of the beast? Well, look at verse 3. So John sees on this beast with ten, seven heads and ten horns, he says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Now this has been an interesting verse, to say the least, in, in the history of the interpretation of Revelation. What's going on here? Well, this beast with seven heads apparently is mortally wounded in one of its heads. And this deadly wound then is healed, 
And then this motivates then all the world to marvel and to follow the beast. Again, how do we interpret this? Well, again, some dispensationalists, I don't want to say all because I, you know, I would never know what all of them believe, but some believe that what is going on here is at the end times, this Antichrist figure will go through some kind of fake death and resurrection. Because the word, therefore, mortally wounded, basically means to slay, to slaughter, to put to death. And the purpose of this, then, is to mimic the death and resurrection of Christ. So the Antichrist, this great figure at the end, mimics Christ's death and resurrection. And by doing so, turns the unbelieving world away from Christ to worship the beast. That's one way to interpret it. Another way to interpret it is, this is where Nero's going to come in, okay? Some connect this with rumors that surrounded that time with a return of Nero from the death, okay? Now, Nero was the emperor of Rome during the time that Paul was alive, okay? In fact, Nero was the one that put Paul to death. Nero was the one that put Peter to death. But he supposedly died by committing suicide in the year 68 AD. But there were rumors swirling that Nero would come back from the dead, that he would come back from the dead and that he would lead a Parthian army. The Parthians were great enemies of the Romans that were beyond the Euphrates River to the east, beyond the easternmost border of the empire. So these rumors swirled because no one found Nero's body. Where was Nero's body? We don't know where his body is. So they thought Nero would come back from the dead and that he would come and reconquer the Roman Empire and begin to rule again in Rome. So this head that was wounded and healed some say that this would be Nero returning to Rome. Okay, so those are two options. This Antichrist figure in the far distant future that mimics the death and resurrection of Christ or this, you know, this rumor swirling around that John is sort of kind of incorporating this rumor of Nero's death and return from the dead in you know, some time in the first century. Those are two ways. However... Given that we're not looking at the beast as an individual, I think the best option would be to see this as an apparent, as the apparent end of a tyrannical government, only to see it rise again. In the first century, this could very well be Rome, because when Nero did die, the Roman Empire was thrown into chaos for a period of time because it lost its emperor. But then you had successors that came after him. Uh, Vespasian and his children. Vespasian was a Roman general and he assumed rulership and he brought order again to the empire. And then his sons, um, uh, I think it was Titus was one of his sons. Titus was the one that actually sacked Rome in, in 70 AD. So this idea is that after the death of uh, Nero, chaos erupted in the, in the empire only to be reestablished under Vespasian. As one commentator writes, this deadly wound signifies the apparent demise of tyrannical rule. Rome's dominion looks as if it had been dethroned and removed forever, and yet the empire is not destroyed. Just when it seems when the tyranny has ended, the power has resumed. And again, this is a pattern we do see again throughout history, right? With the rise and fall of empires and world powers, just when tyranny seems to be uh, destroyed in one area, it pops up again. The beast continues to come back in, in various forms. If it's not Rome, it's going to be something else. 
So with this seemingly miraculous healing of the mortally wounded head, worship follows. Verse 4. So the world marveled and they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? So they worship the beast, they worship government, but in a sense what they're doing is they're worshiping the satanic powers behind it, right? In worshiping the beast, they are worshiping the dragon because the dragon gives his power to the beast. And here they use language reserved for God alone because this idea, who is like the beast, this echoes what Israel said when they were delivered out of uh, their bondage in Egypt in Exodus 15.11, when Moses, in the Song of Moses, Moses says, Who is like a God? Who is like you, O Lord God, who with His you know, mighty hand and His outstretched arm who you know, rescued us from, from Egypt? These people are saying, Who is like the beast? Who is like the beast? But this worship is only restricted to those who dwell on the earth. Verse 8, All who dwell on the earth will worship Him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now, do you remember, we've said this phrase, we've seen this phrase before, those who dwell on the earth, do you remember what that refers to? Unbelievers, yeah. Every time you see that phrase, those who dwell on the earth or those who live on the earth, it's always referring to unbelievers. The believers are those who dwell in heaven. Even though we may not be physically in heaven, we dwell in heaven uh, at least spiritually, right? Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are seated in the heavenly places right now in Christ. Those who dwell on the earth, they are those whose names are not written in the book of life. Okay, the book of life. Right? If you remember, at the, we'll see this again in, I think, Revelation 17, and we'll see it obviously at the end end in Revelation 20. The book of life is, you know, when you, got the, when you have the great white throne judgment at the end of Revelation 20, it says all the dead are raised all the, you know, from the sea and, and, and they're brought before the great white throne and it says books are open. So there's a bunch of books there. And then it says the book of life is also open. And it says those whose names are not found in the book of life are judged by what is written in the books. So the books, plural, are the recording of our deeds our works. All right, that's what we're judged on. But if your name is recorded in the book of life, then what's written in the books doesn't matter anymore because that's been covered by Christ. When God looks at you because you are in Christ, he looks at you as he sees his son because you you are cloaked in the perfect righteousness of Christ. But if you're going before the throne of judgment not cloaked in the righteousness of Christ, if you're going cloaked in your own righteousness, then you're going to be judged by what's written in the books. So here, in Revelation 13, we see that those who worship the beast, those who worship the beast are those whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain. And I think it's best to see that phrase there from the foundation of the world as modifying the book of life, not the Lamb slain. Because we see that in in uh, Matthew 25, verse 34. In Matthew 25, verse 34, then the king will say to those in his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
And in Revelation 17, verse 8, we also see there uh, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell in the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So I think here it's best to see the book of, you know, that phrase, foundation of the world life, not the idea that before the foundation of the world. Then finally, in 9 and 10, we see the dire warning. So John's vision of this first beast ends with a dire warning, verses 9 and 10. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. He is the patience and the faith of the saints. Now verse 9 sounds a lot like what you see at the end of the seven letters, right? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, this is a way of, you know, just like earlier when in you know, the sermon this morning when Jesus says, most assuredly or verily, verily that's, that's Jesus' way of saying, listen up. Well, this is another way of saying, pay attention. Pay attention. If you have an ear to hear, Pay attention to what is being said. Let him hear. And what is the heart of this warning? Satan is going to empower the world's governments against the church. They will wage war on the saints. The unbelieving world will effectively worship the governments of the world, and the saints will be under siege. That's the warning. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Now again, we're going to see a, uh, another verse here. Verse 10 is translated differently if you have the ESV, the NIV, or anything else. Um, Revelation 13.10 is going to look differently. I don't have an ESV with me. Who has an ESV can read verse 10? Can you, re- can you read it? Right, so it sounds like when you read it that way, the ESV suggests that believers will be taken captive and slain with the sword. Right, it says if you are to be taken into captivity, then you're going to go into captivity. If you're to be slain with the sword, then you're going to be slain with the sword. Now, the way the New King James reads it, it seems to suggest that those who lead into captivity and those who kill with the sword will themselves be led into captivity and killed with the sword. Either way, <laughs> either way, it's, you know, the, the phrase at the end here is where it says, here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Because if the New King James is right, then what that suggests is that those who are persecuted will be vindicated because the persecutors will themselves be taken into captivity and killed with the sword. Now, if you were to read through any of the Old Testament prophets, you'll see that, right? Those who were sent by God to judge His people they themselves will be judged, right? The, 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 the means that God uses, whether it's Babylon or whether it's Assyria or whether it's some other country that God uses to judge His people, they themselves will be judged. And oftentimes you'll see that. It says, you slew with the sword, you're going to be slain with the sword. You, you, know, you took into captivity, you yourselves will be taken into captivity. But it's a call for patience and faith at the end here that will be applied. And the idea is that as the church, we have to be patient in this 
time of persecution. Now, we don't see it a lot here in this country, at least not yet. <laughs> Maybe we're kind of like seeing the beginnings of it. You know, Christianity and the faith has been so marginalized in our society that we can no longer say that this is a Christian nation, if it ever was a Christian nation. But the point is, is that throughout the history of the church, there's never been a period that the church has not been persecuted, that the church is not under siege somewhere. If it's not here, it's going to be somewhere else. And if it's not somewhere else, then it'll probably be here at some point. So the idea here as we wrap up is that in the face of all of this worldly power, we have to have a courageous faith. We have to continue to stand fast. That's the call here, right? He who has an ear, let him hear. We have to persevere. We have to stand fast. We have to continue to maintain our witness in this world. We, have, we cannot bow to the government. That's the whole point here. Uh, if, if we allow the government to, to control us, you know, if we, let me put it this way. See, I didn't, I didn't flesh this part out in my notes, so now I'm, now I'm kind of off script here. But one of the things I've always believed about the church is it's either being persecuted or it's being tempted to kind of go along to get along. All right? You see that in, and I think you see it so clearly during this period in the first century with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire tried to kill the church, and when it realized it couldn't kill the church, then it tried to sort of compromise the church. And what you see when Constantine becomes a Christian and, and then he, he legalizes Christianity in the empire, then you see the, sort of like this marriage of church and state which corrupts the church. The church is never more pure than when it's under persecution. right? When the, when the church feels at ease in Zion, when the church feels at ease in the world, that's when you have to watch out. That's when you need a courageous faith. Is when the church is not under persecution because there's all kinds of temptations to kind of go along to get along. But we also see in this passage how the devil works. The devil is not a guy in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork, okay? That's how your kids may dress up on Halloween, but that's not how the devil goes around. The devil goes around by influencing world governments. And again, I think you see it so clearly in this day and age. Um, even growing up as a kid in the 70s, there was a, at least a general idea of a Christian mentality. You can say things from the Bible, you can talk about Christian things, and people at least have an understanding of it. Now, we're, we are well beyond that. We are well beyond any kind of... Uh, we're in a, what I think many people call a post-Christian world, in the sense that it feels like you need you know, to evangelize the United States as opposed to sending out evangelists, right? And in fact, you see that from many third world countries where the church is growing rapidly, they're sending missionaries here. <laughs> you know, we're the mission field again. You know, in Europe, which was the bastion of Christianity for a thousand plus years, is all but dead as, a, as, a, as, you know, as far as the church goes. I mean, there's some pockets of the church there, but it is all sort of married to the state. And that's what I think what happens when the church marries to the state, it has this comp, you, know, you have this temptation to compromise. And then finally, you know, this idea of tolerance and multiculturalism versus worshiping the one true God. Rome was okay with any religion 
as long as you worshipped and, and served the emperor. They would tolerate every world religion because it didn't matter, except for the Christians, because the Christians would not bow down to Caesar. When they were asked to, to say, you must say Caesar is Lord, they would say, no, Jesus is Lord. Jesus Kyrios, Jesus is Lord, and then they would be persecuted for that. And the beast will not tolerate not having anybody not worship it. There was too many knots there. But the point, you get the idea. The beast will not tolerate disloyalty. The beast will not tolerate you not worshiping it. And that's what, ha- you know, as Christians, we have to worship God. And, and we see the sort of, in a sense, you can even see this in our day and age too, this sort of the deification of the government, right? The government can solve all your problems. Just, just give it more money, just give it more power, it'll solve all your problems. How many people think that's actually going to happen? Okay, I don't think it's going to happen either. <laughs> so those are some of the lessons to draw from this. As Christians, we need to recognize we are in this period of time, this 42 months, this three and a half year period. The beast is out there ravaging. It is, it is, trying, it is making war with the church. It is making war with the saints. And we need to stand firm in our faith. That is, that is the call uh, to the church.